0: Irish Nation. Notre Dame improves to 2-2 two and two on the season heading into the bye week. The easily best performance of the year for Marcus Freeman, maybe of the Marcus Freeman tenure, walking away with a comfortable double-digit victory on the road in Chapel Hill. But Mike, more importantly, we are facing each other in fantasy football this week and we might be the two worst teams in our league because we spend all of our time on Notre Dame data analytics and not NFL data analytics. But as of right now, we are in a slugfest projected first to 85 points wins. Not great. Who you got winning the fantasy matchup, uh, Mike or Brett?
1: Uh, I honestly don't feel good about my fantasy team in this league this year. Basically, this game is the toilet bowl. We'll see what happens. Maybe we'll get some luck. But I've had horrible QB luck already. Like My, my two QBs that I drafted already hurt. I have two and now. I think he's gonna be fine. it looks like he might be fine. He was in concussion protocol. But that's up in the air a little bit about whether or not he's gonna play his next game, but just horrible, horrible luck. He got- he didn't play the entire game, so I'm not feeling too good, but I think if there were a team that I was able to somehow pull it off against, frankly, Brett, I think it's- it's your team. So, uh, at this point, anything's possible. I- I would say I'm not feeling optimistic, but yeah, I would say I'm kind of- it's a toss up for me, 50-50. And I guess if I had a pick, you got to bet on yourself a little bit. So I'll, I, I'll say that
0: uh, my team's going to win. Well, for our listeners, uh, the name of my fantasy football team since 2013 has been Tommy Time with a mugshot of Tommy Reese failing to elude the, uh, police and cab drivers in South Bend. Uh, hopefully some of our listeners get that reference, but we are not here to talk about fantasy football, uh, for this entire show. We are here to talk about Tom Reese. Tommy Time. So we've got a couple segments on today's show going into a bye week. We do not have a game preview, so we're going to recap the UNC game, a great win for Notre Dame and, and Marcus Freeman getting back on track. And then we're going to do a segment on um, the SP+. Plus. A couple weeks ago, we did a segment on SP+, Plus and, and different ways to use that and a sort of setting expectations um, for, for coaching staffs um, and, and, and kind of how, you know, Really, who's a contender and who's not a contender, and, and how does that play into the year? We're now going to use this show to look at parity in college football and whether or not parity's gone up or down over time, um, which is a you know pretty common topic in, in college football these days. So we've got two segments for you this week. We'll then come back next week, a um, little bit of a deeper dive on the season and, and where it's at, t- taking kind of a pause y- using the bye week to kind of assess where we expect the rest of the season to play out and and also preview BYU. But we'll save that for next week's show. So with that, Mike, let's dive into the game in Chapel Hill. Let's do it.
1: Remember, the problems caused by alcohol
0: can be staggering. Notre Dame comes away from Raleigh with a resounding victory. We were up multiple times in this game by over 20 points late. Um, really a great win overall for Marcus Freeman. But unfortunately, things got a little tighter at the end, really during garbage time, where the score 45-32 really doesn't reflect what this game was. At at one point, Notre Dame was up 38-20 late in the third, and at another point in the fourth quarter, up 45-20, and kind of let UNC claw back into it. But post-game winning expectancy of 86%, really not quite reflecting... Garbage time, this one never felt in doubt. So, Mike, with that, are, are you concerned about how things tightened up at the end of the game? Any any big takeaways um from from this game before we dive into the offense and defense? Not really. The Oklahoma State game and the Fiesta Bowl, that
1: was that was clearly I mean, that wasn't even just a lack of focus. That was a multitude of things coming together, and that was that was a collapse. This it never felt like we were anything close to that, where we were on the verge of completely letting things slip. There were some fluky plays. That fumble in the end zone. Those, those are the types of plays that you just, so frustrating. You're literally inches away from a touchdown. I think the last time I remember Notre Dame having a play like that, I want to say it was Sear Wood maybe seven or eight years ago. Maybe it was even nine or 10 years of that, ago at that point. I remember him diving into the end zone and kind of similarly like the ball. In that case, the ball got like swatted out of his hands, which is very frustrating. So that, that, I, to me, that's a very gimmicky, fluky play. I don't think that reflects any sort of lack of focus and that, Frankly, that's that would have been a, a pretty good uh, point swing if we, if we had actually gotten that. We also missed a field. Yeah, game. we'd have gone
0: up fifty-two to twenty. By the way, with about eight nine minutes left, right? That, that fifty-two to twenty feels a lot different than forty-five thirty-two.
1: It does. It does. And it was at that point in the game. The game was over. North Carolina really all it did is it just the game looked a little bit closer than it was. By all counts, this was a dominating Notre Dame performance. Going into this game, Brett and I were. I don't know, I, I, to describe our mood, I would say that we thought that if we had a good performance, we could eke out a win by a couple points. I would say Notre Dame vastly exceeded our expectations, played extremely well. This is kind of what this is the type of performance I think we were expecting going into the season. Um, so it's good to finally see that. So I think the stuff at the end, I really don't think it's a big deal. That, again, that fumble in the end zone, very fluky play. There's that 64-yard pass to Antoine Green with less than two minutes left. If you dive into that play, it's important to note it was a 4th and 21, Al Golden dialed up a corner blitz. I don't know why he why he chose that moment to do a corner blitz when the game was pretty much over. Maybe he thought like an exotic play like that, since the game's over, maybe we could try something a little bit interesting there. Typically, you're doing a prevent defense or you're sitting back, but we went a little aggressive there and it, it kind of bit us. But again, the game was over at that point, so it doesn't really matter. Overall, I'm extremely happy with the game. I agree, like some of this, I think some of the post-win game expectancy, it felt like it should be a little bit higher, but as Brett mentioned, how you measure garbage time, that comes into play here a little bit. I think anyone who was watching the game saw that the game was was clearly over when all this stuff was happening. So my takeaway, I'm very pleased with how Notre Dame played. It's encouraging. I'm looking at where we were at a couple weeks ago against Marshall. And we were, we were ringing the alarm bells. We were getting pretty nervous. Now I'm potentially seeing, I'm getting optimistic. I'm thinking, hey, maybe, maybe Freeman's grown into this job a little bit. Maybe he's getting a feel for the team a little bit more. Maybe the team's getting their confidence back. And I think some of these better win-loss record scenarios that we talked about earlier in the season, they're looking, they now actually look like they're back on the table again. Don't want to overreact to one game, but I think this is about as encouraging a sign as we could have hoped for.
0: I, I agree. I don't think there's a single person um, who's been following this show, should have went into this game thinking that Notre Dame would be up by three scores on, on the road in the fourth quarter. What I really like, too, so I always discount kind of quote-unquote garbage time. SP Plus, by the way, defines garbage time as being up by 22 points in the fourth. So at one point in time, we were up by 25 points in the fourth. Um, now once it gets back within that threshold, which it did, then it's, you know, no longer garbage time and it's back to quote unquote real football, but it it was never in doubt. So look, did Al Golden dial up really a silly blitz call, like a corner blitz on fourth and 21, like really, but I'm never a fan of a prevent defense rush two or three and drop everyone else. Like, I'm not a fan of that. I was, I'm not going to second guess that too much, but if you just said that, um, you know, really. Drake May is going to throw for 300 yards, but 140 of that is going to come on two passes in busted coverage when Notre Dame's up by three scores late in the game, an 80-yarder and a 64-yarder. And the rest of the game, we really kind of stuffed the Drake May show. Yeah, we we should feel ecstatic about walking away from this game. And so rather than focusing on, you know, how did it tighten up, I'm actually really focused on the offensive side of the ball, and so I think that's where we're going to spend most of this recap, um, is, is going over scheme and play calling. And so I'll, I'll kick us off. As a reminder, last week we did a review of our thoughts on Freeman and, and Reese and really dug into Tom Reese's play calling and the lack of play action, screens, runs to the perimeter, basically anything that you can categorize as misdirection. To start this game, we had nine plays that were six long three to five step drop back passes, two runs up the middle, and a jet sweep. They netted 12 yards. Eight of those was on the jet sweep. They netted 12 yards or 1.3 yards per play, and ignoring the jet sweep, the one misdirection play, they netted 0.5 yards per play. And that led to a three and out and a missed field goal after we got awesome field position on a, on a good defensive stop and a, and a punt. And so it just started off this game thinking, what are you seeing, Tom? Like, we talked about one thing. Tom Reese is clearly not listening to Gairish talk. He's clearly not a follower of the show, and he should be. But we had one job this week, and it was to run misdirection. And then, magically, someone must have plugged him into the show after the second drive because we started off with two straight runs up the middle for no yards. And on third and seven, Pine scrambles for a first down. And then misdirection, RB pass, perimeter run, perimeter run, perimeter run, play action, touchdown to Mike Mayer. Five straight successful plays with some element of misdirection. And that was the story the rest of the game. Um, that really got us on track with misdirection. We continued with misdirection. We continued with motion. We continued with play action. And it was just one after the other, and it eventually just wore down UNC. And then the -the up-the-middle power game worked. Like, the -the up-the-power game, you know, ground and pound in the fourth quarter eventually worked. But we wore them down by getting to their perimeter, by throwing different looks, by throwing misdirection, misdirection, and misdirection. If there's one word to put into the vocabulary of the Notre Dame offense, it works when they're misdirection. And we finally saw that for a game, and it led to Notre Dame putting up one of its best offensive performances, really in the last couple of years. Definitely, it, it
1: was night and day that that first drive. I mean, the first two drives um, at, early in the game, when we were again kind of running what we would call a bit more of a vanilla offense, it you could just tell it was a slog. is kind of what we'd been used to seeing the last couple games. But then once, once Reece started mixing it up with more of this misdirection, things just opened up. It was, it just, there was just clearly, uh, a, a step function or like a light switch that kind of went on and the offense just started, started humming. I and mean, then this is a, a point that we made. We've made this point a lot, of, uh, frankly, like quite a few times, but we think these, a mindset you hear a lot in football is, Hey, you need to establish, you need to use the power run game to establish these types of plays like the play action these jet sweeps the misdirection what we're kind of seeing and this is what we've been saying we think that's a bit of a myth we think that you can actually do the opposite so by doing these misdirection plays by doing a lot of plays that are meant to keep the uh, the defense on their heels a little bit you you get them to hesitate a little bit they second guess certain things and then and then once you kind of do that and they're kind of on their heels a little bit then you can start working in some of these up the middle power running type plays and they're actually more effective and I think that's what we saw here we saw kind of uh, certainly as the game went on these types of plays were working a little bit better but again kind of getting a little bit more into this point about how important it is to pick the type of run plays that you want to do and and especially like the timing of it What we saw kind of I would say overall something that we saw is like when we ran up the middle versus when we ran outside so we ran outside 6.3 yards per carry so More successful. That was something we mentioned last week. Outside run plays, they just seem to be working better for now. It fits our skill set better. I understand why coaches say that they want the power run game up the middle. But as we were saying, it seems like you can actually establish – you can actually make that more effective by establishing other parts of the offense. Now, the runs up the middle – so it's 15 carries for 5.9 yards. So not is not that much lower, actually. Not as much lower as you would think. But what you have to do here is you have to exclude Estime's 29-yarder. So if you take that out of the equation, so that was a bit of an outlier play, then that brings you down to 4.2 yards. And that's not horrible, but that is a lot different than 6.3 yards per carry. And this is, again, this is circling back to a point that I, ma- I made earlier, is that most of these runs up the middle, the ones that were more successful, were later in the game when we had them down Back on their heels and they're worn out, tired. A lot of these misdirection plays were clearly chipping away at them. So it seems like that's, seems like that's the formula there. You can work these types of plays in a little bit more as the game goes on. Our stance is just bashing it up. Oh, go ahead, Brett.
0: No, I was was just going to say, and and by the way, that makes sense. If you think about how to break down a defense, just pushing a defense up the middle doesn't really make them work that hard. They're already standing there. But if you make like 300 pound defensive tackles have to run to the perimeter, if you make linebackers have to sprint across the field and go make a play on the boundary, if you have linebackers like having to like stay focused on is my guy in motion? Who's my coverage? Do I need to hand someone off? It makes them a half step slower mentally. And by the end of the game, it makes them a full step slower physically. Like you're just making them work harder. And so, you know, that. 5.9 5.9 yards up the middle, or if you sort of exclude the outlier of the estimate run later on in the game, it, it's really 4.2 yards. But that was more like two or three yards, just like we've seen in the first three games um, in the first half. And so, to me, this is just a recurring theme. Chris Tyree is really athletic. Logan Diggs is really athletic. Audric Estime, even as a quote-unquote power back, is really good when he gets into space. And we're not going to see a lot of teams that can tackle those guys on the perimeter. We're not going to see a lot of defenses that can you know, tackle Lorenzo Styles on a jet sweep. And we talk about this with our own defense. One of the biggest weaknesses of our defense is being able to hold containment, being able to kind of keep the play within the tackles. Well, we're more athletic than other teams. Go use that to our strength. And the biggest thing I come back to is this just isn't that complicated. And it honestly makes me... Very happy with this game, but almost more frustrated with Tom Reese that in the first quarter, we had a 25% success rate. Like in the first quarter, we went right back to where we were of just pounding our head against a wall, trying to smash it up the middle. Like this is 1990s, Bob Davies, Lou Holtz football. And it's just not. And when he gets creative and when he moves it to the outside, things work. So the rest of the game, the first quarter, we had a 25% success rate. One in four plays were successful. The next three quarters, the success rate was 63%. Offenses want to be in the high 40s. 63% is like Joe Burrow, LSU territory. Like Tom Reese could do no wrong in the second, third, and fourth quarters. And I just, I'm so happy he figured it out in the second, third, and fourth quarter. I don't understand how the first nine plays of the game that he got to spend all week scripting. Those are the plays the offensive quarter spends the most time thinking about. Why were they run up the middle, run up the middle, run up the middle, long pass, long pass, long pass, long pass? Like I I just – I don't understand it, but I'm really happy we figured it out and we saw misdirection, and I'm hoping that like the more and more that the evidence is just directly in front of you, we'll start leaning into those strengths.
1: Yep, I agree. It was good to see. It's frustrating that we're doing the same thing in the first quarter. He got – he got into the misdirection a little bit more quickly this game so I think that was good so maybe maybe this will be a theme each week this week we kind of threw we threw some plays just straight down the garbage disposal that's frustrating I don't know if Tommy has if kind of the intent behind this is try to feel out what the defense is doing a little bit and then he can call call the rest of his game accordingly but it still seems like a waste to just kind of throw some drives completely down the drain early on so I don't know hopefully I guess not next week because it's a bye but hopefully when we when we play BYU next we're just doing this right out the gates. We're just doing misdirection. We're taking advantage of our athletes. And BYU, look, BYU, they have not gotten up to as good a start as I think people were expecting this season. We, we were thinking they would probably, be, especially on defense, we were thinking it would be a tougher game. But even if they were playing as well as expected, frankly, we have better athletes than them. And these types of plays really take advantage of that. And like we were saying, it's like when you, when you do these plays where they have to count for your athletes, they get tired. They're, I personally, I agree with you, Brett. I think that the defense is going to that they're going to tend to get more tired from those types of plays. And then once they're a little tired, that's when you that's when you come in and you hit them with the hammer a bit at the end of the game. I think kind of within that theme of misdirection, play action. Just going to I'm just going to mention a few stats here. So, play action. So we had 10 plays, eight for 10, 164 yards, or 16 yards per attempt. That's a very high. That's a very high number, and three touchdowns. So clearly, extremely effective. We're getting a lot out of it. Non-play action. I mean, look, Pine had a pretty solid game. It, th- that's not horrible either. 16 for 24 for 125 yards, but five yards per attempt and no touchdowns. So clearly you're seeing the play action here just in these numbers, how effective they are. Now, are you going to be able to do, you can't do play action every single play, obviously, but I think, I think what you got to do is you just keep pushing it until you start seeing those diminishing returns. And I don't think we're there yet. So I think we can push this even more. I think that's how you find what the the ideal ratio is of play action to not play action. And then screens, we mentioned screens. Need to work more of those in. That takes advantage of our athletes. Five for five on screen plays for 33 yards. No big hitters, but seven yards per attempt. And generally these types of plays, they're, I would say they take advantage of your athletes, but they're also, they're also safer. You're not, it's less likely you're going to have a turnover on these types of plays. So I, I would say from a, I'm going to sound like a finance nerd here, but from a from a risk reward standpoint, these that's that's really good seven yards per attempt on on these types of plays, and I think four or five had successful yardage, so
0: very high success rate. And and this goes back to putting Drew Pine in a position to succeed. Like when someone goes in motion, when you run an RPO, when you run play action, when you run a screen, all of those concepts force the defense to show their hand, right? Like if, if you run a receiver just in a very simple motion, you immediately know whether or not the defense is in man or zone. If someone is following the receiver in motion, they're in man. If someone's not following the receiver, they're in zone. Um If you run an RPO and, you know, play action handoff, you immediately know whether or not they're crashing down on, on to stop the run or if they're dropping back into coverage. And giving Drew Pine that advantage – Like giving Drew Pine a tell from the defense just puts him in a better place to succeed. And do I wish that we had, you know, Mike Floyd out there or Golden Tate or Chase Claypool who could just go and, you know, dominate people or Will Fuller just run by people. And you got Deshaun Kaiser with a first round cannon throwing him the ball. Yeah, then I guess that works, but especially with a first year starter. The fact that Drew Pine is 8 for 10 on play action for 16 yards per attempt and is throwing for 5 yards per attempt on everything else, just do play action until it works. Like, I don't want to see another pass that's not play action until it doesn't work because Drew Pine plays like a Heisman trophy winner when it's a play action throw, and he throws like a very average quarterback when it's not play action. And it just goes back to this theme of misdirection. Um... Moving on, the offensive line deserves a big call out in this game. So we'll we'll tick through some Pro Football Focus grades. Um, Joe Alt graded out at an 85, his second game in a row leading the offense in Pro Football Focus grades. Uh, Blake Fisher, Josh Lugg, Jared Patterson, all solid around the 70 mark. The one black mark for the offensive line: Z Correll once again graded out poorly at 55. You really got to start wondering in this bye week, do you see someone swap out whether it's Rocco Spindler or Andrew Kristoffich, but Z Carell continues to struggle. Um, but as a unit, couple of really great stats here. Um, only five pressures allowed. So that's about an eleven percent pressure rate on pass attempts. That's really, really low. Like defenses want to be in the twenties. So eleven percent pressure rate. Uh Drew Pine was just never under duress, no sacks in this game. And then in the run game, 3.8 line yards. We we talk about line yards a lot. That measures the offensive push um, that the offensive line is getting. Essentially, the yards downfield before a running back is contacted. 3.8 is elite. Um, Low threes is really good. Twos is bad. Notre Dame had been living in the twos against Marshall and Ohio State. They were 3.4 against Cal Bounce back in this game with, uh, you know, continuing to build on on what we saw in Cal 3.8 line yards. I attribute a lot of that, by the way, to outside run plays, setting up the inside run plays. But overall, just a phenomenal day for the offensive line. Joe Alt is just tracking towards an incredible career for Notre Dame. Fisher, Lug, Patterson. Like this is the offensive line we expected to see. They dominated this game. They gave Pine time on the 11% pressure rate. They dominated in the run game with 3.8 line yards. If that continues in any fashion, that is back to Notre Dame, leaning on what we thought would be a strength going into this year and looked like a weakness through two weeks. That's back to being a really big strength.
1: Yeah, give give pine time, and we're we're in pine time. <laughs> That's a it's a hor- horrible pun, but I thought of it when you were talking. So I had, I yeah, I I could not say it. So yeah, I mean the line overall. They're starting to look like the line that we were, we were expecting to see. Corral, he's, he's the one exception. One thing with him, he's always had difficulty maintaining weight, which affects his ability to maintain leverage, uh, when he's, especially when he's blocking against a, a bigger defensive tackle. So that's always been a challenge for him. One red flag is I think he started the year around 310 pounds, which is about a good weight for him. If he, if he could stay about that weight all year, I think you're pretty happy. He already said that he's dropped down to three hundred, so that's not a good sign. Maybe this bye week comes at a good time. Maybe it can kind of help him reverse some of this trend, but it seems like he's been struggling a bit if if you got to swap someone else in there to i mean a fifty five grade's really bad like you should in theory we could swap anyone else in there at that point. And they should do at least a comparable job to what Carel's doing so We'll see. Maybe by week there's a switch. Maybe he gets back on track. But I think if you can shore up that center position, our offensive line is looking really good. So I think they're finally getting there. Now, Michael Mayer, everyone knows how good he is. The grades this week certainly align with it. I think he—I'm just looking up the stats right now— he had an 85 grade from Pro Football Focus. That's elite. That's NFL. That's an NFL level level grade. Keep, keeps putting in performances like that. He'll, he'll almost certainly be a first round pick in the NFL draft. Braden Lindsey, for someone you know of his tenure, someone who has his amount of experience and his athletic upside, he's generally been pretty disappointing thus far. Pro Football Focus grade of 54. Again, that's below a replacement level grade. That means that you can essentially swap. You could swap pretty much anyone else in. Of course, we don't have much depth at receiver, so that doesn't necessarily really apply here. But since you're not really getting any production out of him, he's a total non-factor in the game and, in fact, is negatively impacting the games at times. So that's three grades in a row in the 50s, yet to break 65, yet to have more than 32 yards in a game or more than three catches, just a total non-factor. We talked about the offensive line, the line yards, how they're getting more push. Great to see. But I think we also have to give the running back some credit here, too. Because that was, I would say, last week the line was looking better. They were getting a little bit more push. But the running backs weren't really taking advantage of it quite as much as they could have. That wasn't the case this game. So on an offense where we're having all these wide receiver issues, you need the running backs to step up, especially if if the offensive line is giving them room to run in. And all three running backs had over 100 all-purpose yards, all three scored touchdowns. If you look at their pro football focus grades, they strong performances, uh, SMA, 78 That's a very high level. Logan Diggs, 76. Let's see, who else? Tyree. Tyree was at 65, so a little bit lower. Honestly, I thought he played better than what his grade would indicate. But look, just the running backs were were taking advantage of the situations that were given to them. And that's what we need, especially if our receivers are, again, coming along a little bit more slowly than we'd like. So I think takeaways, though, if we take a step back, this offense, Mayor's a beast. We know that. The offense is going to have to run through him. Our offensive line has to keep performing like this. Hopefully, we figure out. The Corral situation or he, or he steps up and he just starts playing better. And then we're, our backs are, are performing how we thought they would at the beginning of the year. So hopefully they can continue that as well. And then the one area of upside is hopefully Styles, Thomas, maybe even Meriwether. He hasn't gotten much playing time yet, but he's someone who's very athletically gifted. One of those guys that beat writers are always asking about in press conferences. So if he can come along, you know, there's a little upside there if the receivers can start playing better, but I'm not, I wouldn't bet on it. I just haven't seen enough from them to assume that. In two weeks, they're going to all of a sudden be these studs. I think it's we're going to have to rely on, on what we said. mayor, offensive line, running backs, and hope that Pine does a pretty good job as a game manager. And maybe he'll improve and he can do a little bit more of that as, as the game goes on but, or as the season goes on. But I think that's right now that has to be the formula, and I think that's what we have to lean on.
0: I'm, I'm going to turn to the defense in a second, but wanted to spend one more minute on Mike Mayer. It's so easy for us to not talk about Mike Mayer just because he's so good. He's arguably the best tight end in, in Notre Dame football history. And he's, he's knocking on the doors for, you know, really some all-time records that are held by Tyler Eifert and, and Kyle Rudolph. But there's just a couple that I want to highlight to really give kind of a double click on just how good he is. He caught seven passes in this game. Six went for first downs. That is absurd that like when he gets the ball, he's getting past the line, line to gain. The other one that I love is contested catches. We actually talked last week about how Brayden Lindsey is maybe on the wrong side of this stat. And juxtaposing that, so a contested catch is a true 50-50 ball. So if you go and look at pro football focus grades, contested catch across the entire country, every year it's like right on 50%. So that's average. It's a 50-50 ball. Mike Mayer is now at 67% this year. That's absurd. Like no one goes and gets 80 or 90%. So he is up there. Like when it's a 50-50 ball, Mike Mayer just wins way more than he should. Um, that showed up in this game where where he was two for three on contested catches. He's he's six for nine on the season through four games. It's a big reason, especially in the red zone, why he's got three touchdowns um, in the last three games. So what Mike Mayer is doing is so special. He's going to play in the NFL next year. We've got eight more games to enjoy number 87 wearing a Notre Dame uniform, and we just got to soak up every snap he's out there because what he's doing is statistically absurd. Um, Switching to the defense. So this is the side of the ball where it really felt like the fourth quarter kind of tainted the stats. Um, Overall, UNC ended the game with a 37% success rate, which is really good for our defense. Offenses ideally want to be in the high 40s, if you're keeping a defense below 40%, they're just never staying on schedule. Um, UNC had a 50% success rate in the fourth quarter. So if you remove that, UNC success rate was closer to 30%. So really for the first three quarters when this game, um, was still, you know, not quite to blow out territory, um, Drake May was getting nothing. I think he had 140, 150 passing yards through three quarters. He was under duress all day. The havoc was great. The success rate was low, so Notre Dame was keeping them off schedule and generating disruptive plays. So this wasn't just a bend-not-break defense. This was getting after the quarterback, creating havoc, deflecting passes, getting in the backfield. So overall, I I thought this was against arguably a top-10 offense in the country Right up there with how Notre Dame performed against C.J. Stroud, I thought it really reiterated just how elite Notre Dame's defense is. You know, other than two long passes and garbage time, just kept a very explosive offense in check. And and I think more so than our offense, the defense won this football game over the course of three quarters until they kind of let th- things slip and, and maybe lost a little focus down the stretch. Definitely.
1: Uh Going into this game, unanimously this UNC's. I think we all agreed top ten offense. The QB May playing extremely well, and we thought that their, you know, we thought their their receiver group was was good. And that was before we found out that uh, the Downs was actually coming back, who is uh, their their biggest playmaker. So, as far as competition level, what type of t- test you're giving your defense? This is about as tough a test as – I mean, Ohio State. I would say Ohio State is certainly a tougher. Certainly a tougher test than than UNC's offense. But outside of that, UNC, really good offense. So if your defense is holding them holding them down to success rates, a success rate below 40, it means you're, you're really, you really have them on their heels. They're really struggling to move the ball on you regularly. And then on top of that, Brett, as you said, we also generated a very high havoc rate. And a lot of that came from the front seven. So that was great to see. That's something that earlier in the season we weren't seeing as much. We were expecting our front seven to be more disruptive. We finally started to see it more last week against Cal. That theme continued this week. And then I think another thing we'll get more into player, player grades on the defensive side in a bit. But I think one thing that we talked about last week was, okay, great. The defensive line finally against Cal, they showed up. However, the the linebackers actually did not have a great day in the office that week. This, this week, both units played really well. So the front seven as a whole had a very strong performance. surprise, surprise, very high havoc rate. So I was very pleased with how, how, how they played. They can, they continued some trends from last week. We kept them off schedule. We gave up some explosiveness. Again, I think some of these, the scary thing is some of these numbers would be even better if, if you, uh, if you threw out some of these, some of these plays that happened, uh, under what was essentially maybe not technically garbage time per the definition by SP plus and some of these other, uh, analytics, uh, models. But essentially, if you kind of throw that out, I mean, I think our defense is is looking even better. So really, really good performance. I mean, if we even just look at just how many sacks we got to make four sacks, pressure eighteen of his thirty nine pass attempts, nearly fifty percent of throws. He was just under duress the entire the entire game essentially. So please, I think also from the running game standpoint, we didn't allow them to get anything going on the run. Early in the game, May was able to scramble a little bit. And get some yards, but we bottled that up a little bit more as the game went on. We made, overall, we made them one dimensional. And then even when May, even, even the, the passing component was, was generally not as effective as you would have liked it to be from UNC standpoint. Um, a lot of the big plays were later in the game. So hopefully we continue this trend. I, I think as far as this goes, this is a really encouraging sign for our defense going forward.
0: Yeah. What I really liked was the depth showed in this game, especially on the defensive line. Um, Rubio, Chris Smith, Isaiah Foskey, Riley Mills, Jordan Batello, Justin Adam Lola all had grades right around 70 um, and I'd suspect if you removed the fourth quarter those are maybe all in the mid to high 70s and so you had count them up six defensive linemen with you know above average starter level grades you had six defensive linemen playing really solid football you mentioned Maris Leofau and, and the linebackers you know really showed up in this game and and, and played well and so the only red flag, and this really kind of goes back to the garbage time comment again, so I know this is a recurring theme, but Tariq Bracey and Clarence Lewis had a tough day. Um, Tariq Bracy gave up two red zone touchdowns in, in primary coverage to Josh Downs. He was part of the busted coverage on the fourth and 21 blitz gone wrong that led to the 64-yard touchdown. And Clarence Lewis had just overall a tough day at the office. He, he was the one that got burned on the 80-yard score on, on the drive before. So Bracey and Lewis graded out at 46 and 53. Really tough days. But this is by far you know, the toughest game that Tariq Bracey going to go up against all year in, in Josh Downs. Josh Downs is likely an All-American wide receiver at, at the slot. Um, that's about as tough as a matchup as you're going to get. But on the other side, Cam Hart... Showed up and balled out too, right? He, he was targeted seven times and allowed just one catch for three yards. So Cam Hart, who has probably been picked on a little bit so far this year, and Tariq Bracey stepped up, they maybe flipped in this game where Cam Hart was really a shutdown corner on the outside. And so I, I feel totally confident that if Tariq Bracy doesn't have to go up against All-Americans every week, he's going to do just fine in, in the nickel. And if Cam Hart shown up against a really explosive offense and playing shutdown defense... Um, just giving up one catch for three yards. That, that's a great day at the office combined with the depth we're seeing at the defensive line. I just continue to be really optimistic about where this defense is headed, what they've done so far this year. And so Mike, maybe to wrap up the UNC recap next week, I think we'll go into a deeper dive on where do you expect the next eight games to go? We'll, we'll use the bye week to sort of assess the season as, as we're at the one third mark, but really, just to quickly preview that a big whipsaw here right we started off 0-2 Notre Dame was on fire, like fire in a bad way like Rome was burning um came out of the Cal game with some optimism but still a bunch of yellow and red flags and you know kind of squeaked by still and then now we got a dominating game so we're going into a bye week we've we've got BYU coming up a, a ranked team in Las Vegas that's technically a home game for us, but on a neutral field and and obviously closer to Utah than it is to South Bend out in Las Vegas. What's your quick reaction, knowing what we'll dive more into next week, but what's your quick reaction on what the new ceiling is for this team, the new floor? Where do you think the rest of the season shakes out?
1: Yeah, I mean, so obviously a lot of great takeaways from this game. The units that we thought would be strengths coming into this year – really showed up. And that's a great sign. I think I think we've seen a formula now for the identity of this team. And I think it's an identity that we can use to win most of our games. I think where it's going to get challenging is when we're playing some of these. I mean, we don't really have that many elite teams. Clemson certainly is an elite team. The schedules changed a bit. USC, they were looking like that elite offense that we were worried about. That was essentially our takeaway on them was if USC is going to be good, it's going to be because they have an elite offense. So it looked like that was the case with them the first few weeks, but they hadn't really played anyone to note. And then they finally go to Oregon State. Not a great team by any means. And they they really struggled. They they almost lost. They ended up winning. But so maybe USC is not quite as good as we thought they were a week ago. They might still be a top ten team. But those two games are to me those are the toughest. Those are the toughest two games. I think there's a decent chance we could split one of them if if we're able to keep playing like we played this week. That being said, I don't want to overreact one week. We played well this week. Clearly had some red flags the first couple games of the season, the first few games of the season. So I don't think you can totally dismiss that. It's still very possible that we're gonna have games where we show up and we just don't have it. We're struggling, the lines aren't playing how how we expected in the trenches. So I think if you if I had to pick a record, I think I would say eight wins this year feels about right. I don't think I'm worried I don't think I'm nearly as worried about six and six or, or, or uh or worse than that now. I think um I think seven or eight wins feels pretty appropriate now. If if the next couple of weeks we keep we put together we string together more performances like this, then maybe at that case maybe maybe nine wins feels appropriate and maybe maybe I feel comfortable that we're going to win the rest of our games and we'll and you know we could split USC and Clemson. But we're not we're not quite there yet, so I'll, I'll kind of have to see how that goes. It's also worth noting a couple other teams on our schedule that we thought would be uh easier games. I think Syracuse is probably the one. Uh, worth noting the most right here. But Syracuse, that might actually be a tougher game than we were anticipating. So we'll see. It's still early in the season, but uh, overall optimism is a lot higher than what it was a couple weeks ago, certainly uh, two weeks ago.
0: I agree with all that. I think something I keep coming back to is this Notre Dame football team is really hard to figure out. Um, if Tommy Reese calls misdirection plays, we look explosive. And if we don't, we look terrible. And so depending who we get, calling the plays each week leads to really big variations. And there was also this idea that was floating around the Notre Dame, you know, Twitter verse and message boards and pundits and, and you name it that, well, Marshall's a really good team that they've got all these power five transfers. Guess what? Marshall just got beaten badly by Troy. Who's not good. And Bowling Green, who's got awful. So Marshall is a bad football team and we lost to them. So You hope that's a blip, right? Like To believe Notre Dame gets to eight or nine wins, you just need to believe that whatever Marshall was was something that is just like a total fluke, not going to happen, all of the wrong stars aligning, and that's not who Notre Dame football is. But at the end of the day, Notre Dame lost to a really, really bad football team in Marshall and barely beat an okay football team in Cal and then beat a really good football team on the road in, in UNC. But those are... Three and combine that with Ohio State where we looked really good against, you know, the number three team in the country. Those are really different performances. And so who we get each week, you would hope you keep building on your success, right? You would hope they keep leaning into what's working and don't revert back. But we've yet to see kind of any consistency in this team that that I think makes it hard to predict. That being said, the win prediction dropped all the way to 6.8 going into this game it's back up to 7.6. So the, the statisticians are thinking Notre Dame gets to eight wins. Frankly, after an 0-2 start, if you said we finished 8-4, and I'd, I'd feel pretty happy. Um, so that that's our wrap-up on the UNC game. Let's turn it over to a final segment on parity in college football as analyzed by the SP Plus efficiency metrics. Remember,
1: the automobile replaced the horse, but the driver... Should stay on the wagon.
0: SP Plus, a predictive analytics tool that we talk about all the time on this show. A couple weeks ago we had a segment on SP Plus measuring who's a contender. Can we narrow down the list of likely contenders for national championship um, as we now exit the 0 and two Marshall uh debacle that was two weeks ago? Notre Dame's clearly not a contender anymore, so that segment has not aged well. Um, but there's other ways we can use SP Plus, and so in this segment, we're going to use SP Plus to talk about parity in college football. Um, is is that gap growing? Is or you know is parity going away? Are the top one, two, three teams just so much better than everyone else that the gap between the haves and the have-nots in college football is it growing larger? As I think a lot of the media um, and frankly we have talked about before. Or is it actually just kind of what college football has always been? Is, is parity you know, just always kind of been what it is and, and hasn't really changed? And so before we dive into parity, I'll maybe do a quick refresher on, on what SP Plus is. And, and then, Mike, I'll, I'll let you kick off parity. But SP Plus is a predictive tool that measures the efficiency of a team's defense and offense. Uh, you can go back to our show a couple of weeks ago where, where we talked about this in more detail. But effectively, looks at play-by-play data. It adjusts for the quality of your opponent. So you sort of sort out strength of schedule. Like if you play Georgia, that's a lot tougher than playing Georgia State, for example. And then what that's ultimately meant to do is predict point spreads. So if Notre Dame has an SP plus score of 16, which is where I think we're at right now, and Stanford has an SP plus score of minus 7, that means that if Notre Dame played an average team, we would be predicted to be 16 point favorites. And if Stanford played an average team, they would be predicted to be seven-point underdogs on a neutral field. And if Notre Dame played Stanford, you could take the 16 minus the seven and say Notre Dame should be about a 23-point underdog. And so it's sort of a measuring stick of how you would expect teams to do. It's really meant to track Las Vegas point spreads. And so we can then use that data in a number of other areas to look at what is a team's efficiency and, and sort of their predictive performance imply about that program or about different programs and, and compare them on a relative basis. So with that as a backdrop to what SP Plus is, as a reminder for our listeners, Mike, you, you want to walk us through some of the trends we see in parity over time in college football?
1: Yeah, so the way that we looked at it is we looked at all the seasons. We looked at the final SP Plus rankings from, from 1992 to 2021, so roughly 20 years or so of data. And
0: we wanted to see thirty.
1: Or is it thirty. Yeah, you're right. It is thirty. 30 years yeah, years yeah, yeah, right. oh, yeah. my maths. Are.
0: We're nineties kids and we just turned thirty, Mike. Yeah,
1: that's <laughs> you're right. That's uh geez. Okay. Well, so forgive my uh my my clear, easy math mistake there. So thirty years of data and what we looked at was how many teams were within ten points from an S P plus standpoint in the final rankings. Uh, from the number one team. So how many, I wouldn't even call that striking distance, but it's more like how many teams were within shouting distance, essentially. And so, overall, key themes, I'm not gonna rattle off what, how, how many, how many teams were within 10 points for each year, but overall, the trend is that it, it is going more towards a smaller group. The 2000s, interestingly, or maybe not so interestingly, parity situation was a little bit different than what we're seeing now. There were more teams that were closer to that number one team. More teams were within, uh, within 10 points. And interestingly, during that period, it was uh, – I think it was marked by – it certainly was marked by SEC dominance um, later in the 2000s. You had you had Florida, but there was a bit of a rotation. It was Florida, Alabama, right? They won titles. Uh, LSU won, won a title in the 2000s. You also had – earlier in the 2000s, you had USC. So I feel like there was more of a rotation of different contenders. You also had Ohio State win a championship at one point. I think the Hurricanes won one very early. So if you look at that decade – There were a lot of different teams that were competing for titles. So the parity situation, it actually seemed like more teams were in the mix at that point. Now, if we look at where we're at currently, it's actually fairly similar to the 90s, which is where you saw fewer teams within 10 points of that number one team. So generally fewer contenders, fewer teams that were actually what we would consider, fewer teams that we would consider to actually have a shot at really contending for a national championship. And one mark that we used was... Essentially, if there were, if there were fewer than five teams at the end of the year that were within that, within 10 points of that number one team. So in the last, so let's see. So five or fewer. So that's actually only happened five times in the last decade. But if, if I'm going to compare that to what it was like historically before that, if you look at the prior 21 years, so bigger time period, it happened six times. So it seems like the free, it seems like we're seeing a higher frequency of fewer teams being in the mix and that matches. That matches up with what I've been seeing. It seems like we're getting more and more to a point where only a couple teams are in the mix. It's the same teams that, that we know. It's it's Clemson, it's Georgia, it's Alabama, it's Ohio State. And that's pretty much it. Occasionally you get an LSU that comes out of nowhere and does it, but generally it seems like it's the same teams that are in the mix. And the data seems to be matching that. Again, particularly when we compare it to the two thousands. In the nineties, interestingly, there were there were there were fewer teams back then that were that were in the mix too. So we're we're more similar to the 90s but even even when you consider that i think the parity has um has gone away a little bit more even compared to that. So again, i think this matches up with what with what we're all seeing in college football today. If you look at recruiting like we've done analyses on recruiting data and how just the top teams are consolidating more and more more and more talent. This is we're starting to see this in in this SV Plus data.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to ask whether or not we're at an inflection point cuz you know, two guys that are 31, 30 years old. I don't really remember a lot of college football in the 1990s. And so I keep thinking, wow, Alabama and Georgia and Ohio State are so much more dominant than everyone else, even more so than USC or Florida or Miami of the 2000s. But if you take that back to the 90s and the Florida State teams and the Nebraska teams and the Tennessee teams, they were just as dominant as the Alabama teams were today. And so it led us to this conclusion of a little bit of a mixed bag, right? Parity has definitely gone away relative to the 2000s, but not necessarily versus the 90s. And so we cut the data a second way. Forget the gap to the number one team. What about the gap between number 10 and number 25? So are the Notre Dames and, you know, maybe Baylor, Oklahomas of the world that are sitting around number 10 in a certain given year, are they pulling away from say the number 25 team? And that interestingly is not showing any trend, um, change over time. So 2021 actually was the smallest gap between number 10 and number 25. So last year, the number 10 team in SB plus, if they played the number 25 team, would have only been a four-point favorite. That is actually the smallest gap in the last 30 years. And it's really averaged like eight to nine points, and there's no discernible trend. It averaged eight to nine points in the 2010s. It averaged eight to nine points in the 2000s. It averaged eight to nine points in the 90s. So this idea of, is there a Growing gap of the haves and the have-nots, maybe for the number one, two, three, maybe for Alabama and Georgia, but are we just seeing more blowouts? Are we just seeing, you know, a group of five to ten teams that are just way far and above better than everyone else in college football? The data actually says no. The data says that the game is just as competitive for top 25 matchup as it's ever been. For top five matchup? It's definitely showing more dominance in the last 5 to 10 years than it was in the 2000s. But that gap between number 10 and, and number 25 is, is not necessarily changed. And so then the last thing we looked at that I thought was pretty interesting was who's holding that dominance. So Alabama has finished in the top 5 of the SP Plus for 13 straight years. In fact, they finished in the top 3. So Alabama is now just on a 13 year run of sheer dominance. Um, Clemson has been in the top five for seven plus years or for for seven straight years. Georgia has been in the top five for four of the last five. Ohio State's been in the top five for the last seven of nine. So those four programs have basically owned college football for a decade. That's actually though not that different than history. So. I'll rattle off a few, but Florida State from 1987 to 2000 was in the top five, 14 straight years. Nebraska in the 90s, 8 out of 10 years. Florida in the 90s, 8 out of 9 years. Uh, Miami in the early 2000s, 506. USC in the 2007 in a row. Florida in the late 2000s, 4 in a row. So there's a lot of historical examples of what Alabama, Clemson, Georgia, Ohio State are doing. I think the big question is with recruiting and with NIL, are we at an inflection point where those maybe five-year stretches or 10-year stretches just turn into permanent? Maybe that's pretty subjective, but we've seen runs like this before in college football of true kind of dominant programs that are just in the top five for a decade. Um, Maybe not quite at Alabama's level, but I really think it comes back to, are we seeing an inflection point because of recruiting in NIL?
1: Yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And this is, this is what the data showed us. 10 to 25 in my mind, that doesn't seem just anecdotally, just watching games. That doesn't seem any different to me. It seems like the level of chaos has been about the same, but yeah, I mean, compared to like when I grew up watching college football, which was really started in the early 2000s, it seemed like going into a season, more teams had a real shot at winning a title. So compared to that, the parody situation has definitely changed recently to where it's, it's more of an upper crust of top, top three, top five teams that are, that are true contenders. But yeah, I, I do think it's, I, I found it really interesting that, that the nineties was, was, was marked by a somewhat similar situation to what we're seeing now. But when you take a step back and you think about it, it's, it, like what you said, Brett's FSU, they were dominating at that period of time. Nebraska, those Nebraska teams were really good and people forget that just because Nebraska's been pretty bad lately, but that those Nebraska dynasties were about about as as dominant as you get in the history of of college football. And then, and then you throw in Tennessee and some of these other teams too. So there really was an upper crust in the nineties. And I do think, yeah, where we're at now is not all that different from the nineties, but it does seem like maybe we are hitting a little bit of an inflection point. So it seems like maybe if we fast forward in a few years, Maybe maybe it's looking maybe it's looking even more selective at the top. Maybe there are even fewer teams that are, are breaking through. So that, that's kind of a question because some of these dynamics we mentioned with the recruiting consolidation at the top, I don't think that was necessarily the case as much in the nineties. I guess we'd have to go back and, and dive into the data a little bit to see what was going on there. Because there there's certainly rules, rule changes and things that happen historically. Maybe if we really dove into what it was like in the nineties with Nebraska, maybe they were able to consolidate talent at a level that uh that, that is comparable to what we're seeing now. Of course, the recruiting data back then was, was not very good. So it would be hard to kind of do a, a comparison like that. But I, I think one thing that is a little different is that I think the consolidation at the very top, and by the very top, I mean Alabama, I think that that is unprecedented. And I think that's the exclamation mark that really, um, really hammers home this point and makes it seem like it makes it really seem like that upper crust is dominating, maybe even more than they are. But I guess when Alabama has won as many titles as they as they have in the last uh, 10, 15 years. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just like there, it, it really is tough for many other teams to, to. you have to be able to overtake Bama essentially if you want to win a title. And, and it's really tough because there are, I think like Florida State, we mentioned they were always, they were always really high in SP plus in the nineties, but they didn't really, they didn't really break through from a title perspective. Bama, they're at a similar level. Soon to be even better than that, even more impressive, but they've actually been winning the title. So that, that's one difference there. And I think, I think that marks a, a notable difference, I think, in the current time period versus what we were seeing back in the nineties.
0: I also think, so if you go back and, you know, think about the 1990s in Florida state, they won 89% of their games. They finished in the top five in the AP poll every single year for a decade. That is absurd. And I think they only claimed two titles in 93 and 99 in, in that stretch. Um, if you think about that though, that was pre BCS. So like if you lost a game, depending what bowl game you were in, depending what TV market you're in, depending on all sorts of things, you might not have won the national title just because there wasn't a national championship game, let alone a playoff. If you think about Saban and the dominance he's had, um, he lost a game in 2011, won the championship, lost a game in 2012, beat Notre Dame for championship, lost a game in 2015, in 2017. So in four of his five titles, um, I guess four of six, if you go back to 2009 in four of his six titles, he lost a game in those seasons. And in the 90s, if you lost a game, you probably weren't going to be the national championship. And so I think going to this BCS era, but more importantly going to the college football playoff, it's giving a mulligan to these super elite dominant teams and then putting them in a college football playoff where they got four to six weeks to prepare. And if you give a dominant team four to six weeks to prepare, they're going to figure it out. They're going to figure out how to blow. And it's why we see a lot of blowouts in the college football playoff. Bobby Bowden's teams in the 90s didn't get a college football playoff. Like if they slipped up in September or they had one down week or for whatever reason that they lost a game... That was it. They didn't win a title that year. Now those dominant teams get a chance to play their way back into a national title. And so I think that leads to us having this perception that Alabama is so much more dominant than they are, that the top four or five teams are so much more dominant than they are, because they get a chance to play back into the college football playoff. They get a chance to go up against, frankly, teams like Notre Dame that maybe shouldn't have made the playoff a couple of years, teams like Cincinnati that are maybe outmatched, or Washington or Michigan or a bunch of teams that have made the college football playoff and gotten blown out. I'm convinced that a one-loss Florida State team in the 90s would have just as likely rattled off four, five, six titles instead of two. And so wrapping up this segment, it's really interesting that I came in to – this research on on SP plus and parity, thinking that for sure parody's gone away in college football. For sure, Alabama's and Georgia's and Ohio States of the world are more dominant than anything we've ever seen. And for sure, the gap between what Notre Dame is doing and the number twenty five team, or you know, just kind of these top five ten programs versus everyone else, of course that gap is widening. And and we thought that we've talked about that on the show. ESPN talks about it. The Athletic talks about it. Like every single pundit talks about how college football is just becoming the haves and the have-nots. The data's mixed. Like there's some things pointing towards that. I think the jury's still out on where recruiting and NIL and all of that goes, but the absolute kind of dominance of the number one team and the gap between sort of the tier one and tier two or tier three the data is really kind of murky, and and we're not actually seeing a clear cut rule. And so, just as you know, we all as college football fans think about you know is the game more competitive or less competitive today versus back in the day? It, it the the data just doesn't suggest that kind of competition's gone away. Yeah,
1: yeah, I I agree, and I, I think that's a great point. I think if if you went back to the '90s and established the postseason structures that we have now. I think think you would see something similar because you're essentially giving these teams a cushion. And on average, they're going to do really well and dominate most teams. And you eliminate the component where if you have a bad game, all of a sudden you're thrown out. So I think you would see something similar. Now, the question for me going forward, and the last last three, four years, I think we've seen uh, fewer teams. 2020 is a bit an exception. Also, COVID year. So there's some weird stuff going on with that year. So 2020 is the one recent year that's a little bit higher in terms of number of... Teams within 10 points of, of, of the top team, but overall, it seems like the last few years we're seeing fewer and fewer teams that are actually closer. Um, my question is, is this, does this become a self-fulfilling prophecy? So maybe it's like the nineties, but if teams like Bama, if they're like, if it's continually the only teams over and over again, do we get to a point to where it's, uh, again, it just, it, it just kind of wills it to happen? And if you're a recruit, you're thinking, why the heck would I go anywhere but Bama or Georgia or Clemson or Ohio State? They're the only ones that are really actually competing for a title. So that's what I want to, I, I don't want that to happen, obviously, but it's something I'm going to be looking at the next few years to see how these trends continue because maybe we're at an inflection point or maybe this is, maybe this is going to stay similar to like what it's like in the nineties. I do think the current structure does benefit, uh, these top teams more than, than what it was like in the nineties though. It's easier for Bam to just string together titles. Like you said, Brett. Much more than what you'd see, much more than what Florida State was capable of doing in the 90s.
0: Completely agree. So that, that's a wrap for the show. We'll be back next week to preview the by, uh, the BYU game and provide some bi-week thoughts on state of the program going into the final eight games of the season. Until then, Gyrish. Gyrish.